It's Friday, December 13th. Welcome to episode 20 of Insert Content Here. Insert Content Here. Words intentionally unclear. Insert Content Here. I'm Jeff Eaton, a digital strategist at Lullabot. I get together with interesting people from the world of content strategy, web publishing, and uh, media to talk about what's happening in their work and what interesting stuff they've learned. This week, Eileen Webb is with us. She's a content strategist and CMS wrangler and doer of things and all-around cool person at uh, Web Meadow. And uh, she and her partner, Aaron, have worked with uh, big, small, and just right-sized companies for more than a decade to build web projects and internal applications and all kinds of cool stuff. So welcome to the show, Eileen. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to have you here. You're the Director of Strategy and Livestock at yeah. WebMeadow. Yes, I am, I am really curious. What kind of responsibilities fall under that title? Well, first there's Google and all of the research and all the strategy, and then there's also poultry. Uh, we live on a small farm in northern New Hampshire, and we raise um, all kinds of birds. And so there's a lot of poultry in my life. So there's water and poultry and feeding poultry and dealing with, you know, hay and food and all that kind of stuff. I like the idea of, like, a job, a job description that combines lots and lots of spreadsheets and poultry. Honestly, you know, we had an intern at one point, and in the middle of the day, we would be like, okay, I know you're, like, moving content right now and dealing with, like, data entry stuff, we need to rearrange the pig fence and we need someone to like keep the pigs back while we are moving their fence so they don't like escape off into the woods. And so he would like come outside and, you know, like wrangle pigs with us. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Best internship ever. So for a couple of years, um, I think you and Aaron even like took some time away from web work to run a bakery. We did. We ran, uh, we did web stuff in Silicon Valley in like the bubble. And then we moved to New Zealand for a while and then we moved back to the U.S. and uh, and ran a bakery, a commercial bakery. So we um, we were doing like sort of production run levels of cheddar cheese English muffins and cranberry ginger scones and things like that. Oh wow! Yeah, and the the problem with baking is that you start really late and you end really early, and uh, it's hard to scale once you get past like you skip from like home to commercial, and then to do twice as much as commercial, you have to just do twice as much. You, you sort of have to become a large manufacturing yes. company that happens to make food goods. Yes, exactly. And that was not where we wanted to go. And so so then we came back to web stuff. So like as you describe it in my head, Web Meadow sounds like the Disney movie version of a, of a small business. Like there's lots of whiteboards and there's fresh bread and there's like fawns capering around. And, yes, and we're all solar powered. So there's solar panels in the backyard. You're yeah. just you're just making that up. No, no, no. There's a bird feeder. There's everything, man. Going from like industrial baked goods to a solar powered web and content strategy boutique shop. How did that happen? Did it involve like dwarves or wishes or <laughs> Um well, you know, because we had done web stuff in our past lives, um we coming back to web stuff was you know there were there were always sort of friends and relatives who were like oh why don't you help us out doing this stuff and we helped um you know we helped people on the side and then we realized that uh making websites just pays a lot better than baking and the hours are better and uh and so that we just sort of transitioned back into web things and and the all of the solar stuff and the animal stuff just kind of happened alongside because that's that's how we live 
So we just incorporated them into our branding. We were like, as long as there's going to be ducks here, there should be ducks in the business. You, you might as well just use those ducks. Yeah, yeah. There was actually a time for a while where clients got to name baby ducks as part of their uh, contract with us. That easily takes the cake as one of the one of the most solid agency perks. That's right. So you've been really active in content strategy circles. Um, has that always been a big part of like how you've approached these projects or is it something you sort of grew into? I know like over the past few years, there's, you know, a lot of people who had an aha moment that, oh, this is, you know, content strategy. This is what we've been doing. Yes. I, I had that exact moment. Um, we, so my background is as like a backend coder, like PHP, Drupal, server administration, like coding stuff. Uh, and we, and so Aaron's background is as a front end developer, all HTML and CSS and everything. And so that makes us a very good team. And as we were building all of these projects, Aaron's kind of a perfectionist is the, the nicest, cleanest way to say that. Uh, and I'm a person who really likes to like think things through and have things be very, uh, sort of systemic and holistic and, um, you know, sort of thinking through all the various angles and trying to make things robust. And so the more and more projects that we did where we incorporated more strategy things, like each next project would be like, oh, we should do this next time. We should try this thing next time. And the more strategy we put into our projects, the better they went, right? The more time we spent on discovery and um, definition phases and things like that, the better the projects turned out in the end. And uh, and then a couple years ago, right after uh, Aaron Kassane's book came out, I remember actually sitting on the front porch by myself reading this book and I like binge read it, right? Like I got it home and I was like, oh my God, I'm just going to sit here and read this whole book right now. And I looked up at the end of my like, you know, I looked up and hours had passed and the book was finished and I was surrounded by turkeys because if you sit still in our yard for any period of time, livestock will come to you and just like sit around you. <laughs> and I said, turkeys. And all the turkeys looked up at me and went, murk, murk. I said, turkeys, this is a discipline. This thing that we have been doing, it has a name. It's called content strategy. The turkeys were unimpressed, but I was, like, super excited about the whole thing. Um, and so, yeah, so I realized at that point that that's actually the direction that we had been moving in. And then once I had a name for it, then I was able to, like, Google it and find people and read books and, like, dive in. It's interesting, you know, the path that you followed, you know, starting in, like, Silicon Valley, you know, web boom era. These days you you – work with a lot of nonprofits and um, you also work with, you know, small organizations as well. I don't, I, not exclusively. Is that jarring? Like, is there, are there differences in the kinds of needs that you encounter? We traditionally have worked with a lot of smaller organizations and groups um, and they're not exclusively nonprofit. Our sort of, our uh, statement or whatever is um, groups who are working to make the world a better place. And so sometimes those are, you know, investment people who are, working with only green investment funds, and sometimes those are uh, small nonprofits, and sometimes they are big nonprofits, and uh, and sometimes they are commercial entities that are doing interesting things with renewables and recyclables and things like that. And the, I would say that the size is the biggest thing, whether you're dealing with, like, if the committee that you're working with for, like, the web redesign team or the strategy team or whatever is four people, and that's four people out of a 200-person agency, that's a very different thing than four people out of a 25-person office. It's not, like, super jarring because we, you know, it's a lot of the same people wrangling no matter what, but some different approaches depending on how many layers it needs to go through before it gets approval and can be moved to the next step. Yeah, the the, the eternal uh, 
juggling act of trying to get all the stakeholders on the same page and and discover the secret hidden stakeholders that no one told you had veto power. Right, right. Uh, of, of the mix of clients that you've worked with, the kinds of you know organizations you've dealt with, like what what feels like the super rewarding one that stands out? Uh, I would say that my favorite, most recently, you want like specific names. Uh, I mean, you don't have to if it's confidential. No, 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 no I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, I would say that my my sort of overall favorite has been um, it's a an organization that we've worked with for a long time called Peers. Um, and we have worked with them on a bunch of different initiatives, uh, and we're still working on like a, a redesign of their current site, which is uh, a good number of years old at this point. But but we've done a bunch of initiatives with them. They are uh, they work in the Bay Area in San Francisco and Oakland and Alameda County, and they they work with um, doing peer work, getting peers involved in mental health advocacy, so um, helping people who are diagnosed with mental illness uh, work through systems and work through getting jobs and getting housing and getting all those kinds of things. And the counselors and the people who are helping them are also people who have been diagnosed with mental illness. And so it's very rewarding work, and it's very, like, it's so human because um, they are entirely staffed by people with mental illness. And so there's, like, there's no separation between, like, who you're building the stuff for and who you're working with to get it built and the result. It's just all very, like, right there. In the session that you did at uh, Confab Minneapolis in 2013, it was a, a fantastic presentation. You, you, I think that was one of the organizations that you mentioned, and you were talking about them in relation to the difficulty trying to communicate to different audiences. There's like one audience that they have that's people coming and seeking help, and then also an audience of people who want to help in some way or want to support the organization. And the kinds of messaging differences that have to be there for those two different audiences can be really, really difficult in that situation. Yeah, very much so, especially when um, when there's donations involved and like cash money, that if you're asking for money in a sidebar, you're implying that anything that is in like the main content div is stuff that is charity. And that then even if you are just reading the website and finding useful things in it, you are somehow taking charity, which people feel super weird about. Oh, interesting. So yeah, there's definitely, no one wants to take charity, right? Oh, no. So yeah, there's definitely like interesting intersections there. And grant funding comes into a whole bunch of these things. Um, you have to like make content and make features and make progress that pleases people, but you only have to please these people for a year because <laughs> that's how long the grant lasts. Yeah, you, you, you don't want to completely re-architect your website to, to make a group of people happy who only really have a one-year relationship with you. Right, right, which is just an interesting set of, you know, and it's not like you want to get grants that are far outside of your normal mission, right? The whole point of a grant is to support your mission or to expand your mission, but, um, but it's definitely an interesting set of uh, restrictions and challenges to, to make sure that what you're doing fits with your overall mission, but also fits this very specific narrow mission that this one chunk of funding is dependent on. It seems especially interesting to me because a lot of the energy and a lot of the highly visible public discussion in the world of like content strategy right now also revolves around... I don't want to say it's exclusive to this, but there's a lot of energy around the marketing aspect, you know, how content strategy can help focus the marketing messages of an organization. But a lot of that revolves around either sales or support-oriented. Yeah. Yeah, it tends to be very product-oriented. And then there's missions. And how do you communicate about a mission or helping someone when the idea of a successful completion isn't you've closed a sale, but someone's life got better? 
Yeah, there's actually a client that we have worked with, uh, again, in Alameda County, that part of their mission is to get people out and moving. It's a, it's a mental health thing that is tied into people's physical health because people with mental illness um, have really terrible physical health statistics. Like, on average, they die, like, 15 years earlier and things, not because they are actually sicker, but because they are less likely to get help with routine physical problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so there's a whole campaign dedicated to that. And so one of the explicit goals for this website was to essentially get people off of the computer and outside, which is a very weird thing for a website. And to be thinking about like content and things that, uh, that your goal is to get someone to close the browser and leave. I don't know. People seem to be staying on our website for way too long. This bounce rate needs to be higher. Oh, that that's that's interesting. So, I mean, what, what kind of approaches did did you take to that? I mean, uh, what we ended up doing with that one in particular, because part of that is that you know it might be nighttime when someone is reading that, and what you're talking about is going for you know a beautiful walk in the sunshine, and um, the times don't necessarily line up with what you might be encouraging people to do. And so, what we put some effort into in that was um, was helping people plan for activity. Uh, so hooking them up with events and classes and things that were happening in the area that were outdoorsy things, um, because this organization also sponsored like community walks and uh, you know tai chi in the park and things like that. Essentially helping people think beyond, like think like, well, what am I going to do tomorrow? And helping them plan it, you know, and calendar linking and stuff like that. Oh, okay, that, that's that's definitely pretty cool. In that same confab session, there was also. Uh, Quaker nonprofit organization that you were talking about having worked with was Quaker United Nations office. Okay. org. They're great. They actually finally just launched their site like a month ago. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, what, what, what's the, so it's what, actually live. What's the URL? Uh, it's QNO, Q-U-N-O.org. Okay, cool. Like one of the things that I thought was really fascinating about that project in particular, what you were describing was that um, it was, it dealt with like projects that had multi-decade time span. Yes, definitely like outside of what I usually deal with. Right. And it seems like so many of the tools that we work with are just, you know, that that isn't even a consideration. And like even questions about, so what should we build the website with? It's like certain aspects of that just sort of fade away when you think, well, the the goal is to do this effectively for something that's going to be around for maybe 20 years or something. Like how, how did you tackle yeah. that? Well, you know, it was um, it helped a lot when we sort of shifted our our focus um, towards being like a historical resource rather than thinking of ourselves as like a latest news because that's what people tend to think of with with websites and with sort of updates and information is that, that it's all about latest news. And so when we sort of pretended that things were done and that what we were doing was looking at them as a historical resource, that helped us shift a little bit how we were approaching time and how we were approaching um, how things got cataloged. Like one thing, for example, is that we didn't do, um, we don't have day stamps on any of those entries. We just say like May 1973. We don't say like May mm-hmm. 14th. Which puts it in a different time scale. Yeah. Once you get far enough back, it really like, does it matter that it happened on the 16th? No, it really doesn't. <laughs> It, it, we're actually working with um, a nonprofit right now that um, a, a lot of the stuff that you mentioned, you know, in talking about that project, I think really helped inform how how I tackled that. And, you know, many of the lessons that you mentioned have been really beneficial. That idea of, you know, not not being obsessive about the 
news archive or you know the press release of the day or something like that but really truly trying to focus on what kind of stories are being told about what this organization does and what it's accomplishing in the long term yeah one of the fascinating things about that project was also that they have things that they can't talk about until they're entirely finished and so they have these um they have like areas of work and projects that they have been working on that are were you know inside Cambodia during the time of the Khmer Rouge. And so it wasn't until, like, the regime changed that they could actually talk publicly about that work. Oh, wow. And so that's really, like, that's interesting kind of stuff because how do you how do you surface that? Because that has, I mean, it's not latest news, right? Like, it happened a while ago. Um, so how, how to surface that and and weave it in with the other things that were happening in the organization at that same time but also not sort of abandon it to the archives because it happened a long time ago. They, they used to not have any way to tell those stories because they just didn't have, because everything was so latest news focused. Because so much of the content that gets attention on the internet is either like blogging oriented or news oriented, it's very easy for our entire way of like thinking about taxonomy and organization to sort of drift naturally to that reverse chronological crawl. Well, and we, we move on such a fast timeline, right? When you see people tweet something and they're like, this is an old post but a good one, and you're like, that was July. That's not an old post compared to, you know, a project that's been going on since 1981. Like, Before there was an Internet, yeah, this is a project yeah, exactly. that was going on. Well, you know, if you think about, like, Unix time, right? Starts in 1970. <laughs> like, no, nothing happened before then. It, it, it actually took us a while to invent a way of storing dates that went back that far. That's right. Like, what kind of, I won't say unique pain points. There's a, there's always lots of shared pain points through, through different kinds of organizations. But what kind of difficulties do you think stand out that nonprofits in particular really have to overcome when they're tackling projects like this? I'm working primarily with um, what I call value-based nonprofits. Right, because nonprofit is just a tax designation. <laughs> and so, like, the mental health advocacy group probably has nothing in common with, like, the Portland Cement Association of America. And and so for the value-based groups, I think one of the things that, that I, like, I run into over and over again, and it's the same problem, but it manifests differently with every single project and every single group, is that the mission goals and the business goals often have nothing to do with one another. Like, everyone has business goals, like, or what they need to do to keep running. We need to get donations or we need to meet our grant requirements or whatever the various things are, federal funding, all kinds of things. And then you've got mission goals, which is what you're actually trying to do to change the world. And in a business, those are very like overlap, right? We are selling things so that we can make more things so that we can sell things. Or, I mean, it's not that simple quite, but they are usually a very high overlap between what it is that you're trying to do and how that will keep you in business. But in a nonprofit that is you know, working for LGBT equality laws, like they need to stay in business by doing these things over here, but their goals have really nothing to do with them staying in business. Their mission and like what they're trying to change in the world has nothing to do with their funding. Yeah. One of the things that, that we've found in, in, in working with a few organizations like that is that hidden stakeholders can be can be difficult to surface, like especially in partnerships with different organizations and stuff like that. It's very easy to 
to get halfway through and not realize that you know a simple you know a simple reorganization of navigation is a, a stab in the back by an organization who's been a long-term partner or something like yeah. that and, and figuring out how to navigate those spaces at least for us has been a, a fascinating learning experience yeah so, and especially with a with an organization that is values based if they if they're doing work that is designed to improve the world that they are intending to like fix problems that they see in the world um a lot of people like self identity as moral creatures is tied up in these decisions right this is not about selling widgets this is about like changing the world and so when you rearrange the navigation I'm an IA person. I'm like, I can rearrange the navigation so it makes more sense to the user. And they're like, you're rearranging like my worldview and what it is that I'm doing to fix problems in the world. That's very fraught. One of the one of the first like really really large projects I had a chance to work on myself was um, the the redesign of um, the website for an organization that about hundreds of churches belonged to, and it provided materials to churches and stuff like that, and it had a lot of those same challenges. It was like, wet behind the ear, ears, eager web guy, want to rearrange things. Hey, let's 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 lay these things out differently. And like, there's like people who've been working on like the underlying meat of this stuff for like you know most of their lives. And like, oh, we, we can't change that. But, you know, it's God is on the line here. You know? <laughs> right. Exactly. You know who you're making angry? <laughs> yeah, it's, those those meta tags matter. Yes. <laughs> In business, it can it can definitely be fraught, but there there is always sort of that bottom line, you know, dollars and cents to appeal to. Of you know, look, this is going to increase conversions or something like that. Um, I, although I guess in a church site, you could say that it would increase conversions too, but it would. <laughs> of a whole you know, that's a, that's a side issue, but. I know that both both you and uh, your partner have worked a lot with Drupal, right? Yes, we are pretty. Um, we up until recently, where we have shifted, you know, sort of away from development. Um, we were we were an entirely Drupal people. Like, I'm curious what you feel like are from a content strategist standpoint. What are the biggest like strengths and weaknesses of Drupal, like on, on these kinds of projects? For me, the biggest thing that I miss when I'm working in CMSs that aren't Drupal is uh, structured content and the ability to make content models that just look exactly like these crazy like line drawings and like whiteboard sketches that I make. Um, the ability for entities to relate to one another and to loop through entity relationships and like I have yet to find something that I want to like a kind of content model that I can't translate well to Drupal. But I have worked in lots of other CMSs where, like, you can't, you just can't do that. And I'll, I'll make up some nice spreadsheet and even things that I think of as being really, really simple. And it's like, nope, your only choice is a taxonomy field. It all has to fit in there. I'm like, really? But sad trombone. Yeah, yeah, really, like super sad panda. So yeah, for me, definitely, like, I'm super. Um, my brain is very much like structured content. And, and I like structuring things and making systems and making models. Um, and so Drupal is really strong in that. And I, I miss it when I go to other, when I'm working in other CMSs. And then in terms of weaknesses, what was I just thinking about? Because Drupal is, is Drupal, um, I feel like there are a lot of things that are more complicated than they should be. It makes the impossible stuff possible and the easy stuff hard. Yeah, yeah. You know, just things like, like changing microcopy in a lot of places can be like 
you have to build a module to do that. Like you can't just change the micro copy. Or, you know, put together a new content type and figure out how to pull it into those little spots in the templates and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 So there are definitely things. I think a lot of them are the, the, it's almost like the low hanging fruit, um, that the, that the Drupal community has been so focused on doing these like complex, amazing, beautiful relationships and APIs and enemies and everything that like you can't log in with your email address. <laughs> you just can't. Sorry. You got to install one of 11 modules that will let you do that. And good luck figuring out which one is the best one. No, I, I was actually just having a conversation. Um, uh, I think with uh, Nazarbina about uh, some, some structured content stuff. And w- one of the fascinating things was this idea of like hierarchy in Drupal, like this idea that, your content is this big soup of stuff with all this metadata and all these relationships and all these fields and stuff like that. And you sort of dip into the soup and pull out whatever mix of content you need in any situation. And, but what about the, the hierarchy? It's like, well, yeah, like the site map. Yeah. It's like the, it's the so classic, hard to make a site map. And, and you can, and there are tools for doing it, but it's like, it always feels very, very obvious. That's not how Drupal wants to think about content, right. you know, as being part of like this big deep sitemap tree. Yes. And for me, that matches my brain model very well. Um, mm-hmm. So when I have to do sitemap things, I'm always like, okay, but this line should really connect. It should be over here and there should be a little tangle here and a little squiggle here where it like, it's very hard for me to be a single linear tree. I'm much more like soup and views. You know, we, we've talked a little bit about, about the technical side. Um, and but like from the perspective of uh, a shop and you know you, you as an individual developer you know who started in, in heavily in the technical side and has moved into the content strategy world what do you think are the unmarked you know speed bumps and the stuff that it's easy to get hung up on making that um technical to strategic jump that's like a multiple choice right <laughs> um i think it's people it's always people, right? Um, especially like with like a structured content thing. You know, I'm looking like right now. I'm working on a project where I'm looking at this um, this sort of big mess of stuff that is um, on the existing site, and I'm like, there are ways like we can rearrange all of this, and if we just invert this structure here, then all of a sudden these you know this starts to branch out and make sense, and these relationships start to work. And um, but that's not how the people inside think of it. I can make the prettiest, most perfect, comprehensive model in the world, but who cares, right? The model's not any good without people to to believe in it and to support it and to 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 understand it at like an intrinsic level, so that when something comes along that is that is new, that they really like get how it's supposed to fit in. I don't work there, so I'm not going to be around to like figure out how to adjust the model. Like the model needs to. Um, needs to work with them. And so I think a, a big pitfall for developer people is that we tend to we tend to like the logic, right? And the structures and the rules and the case statements and switches and all those kinds of things. And that like you put people in there and it just doesn't work. Sometimes your known constraint is that like this person will not do anything other than Microsoft Word. And, like, and you just have to work around that. Yeah. And like, so I'm, I've been really, uh, this has been like the year for me of like known constraints internally in my mind, shifting them from being things that are frustrations and roadblocks and being known constraints the same way that, uh, you know, budget or timeline 
or staffing is a known constraint. Mm -hmm. If we don't have a thousand people to throw at this problem, this person only uses Word. It's interesting working working closely with our design team over the past like year or so. Like one of the things that I think has been brought up a couple of times on our side is if you're working on an actual print design, like the physical substrate that you will be printing on is a non-negotiable constraint. Like, you know, are you using glossy paper? Are you using, you know, cardstock? That's going to affect what you decide you can do. Yeah. And you don't rail against that. It's just the landscape you're working with. Yeah, and it feels um, like it's it's a bigger thing, right? It's a it's almost like a philosophical approach to life. Figuring out which things you can change and changing those, and for the things that you can't change, just making the decision that they can't you can't let them like bug you. You'd go crazy, right? If you like, or just be an incredibly anxious or angry person. That to me is not a, a helpful way to approach my life. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's an easy thing for me to think of with regards to like. I don't know, being at the grocery store or something. And so shifting that back into my work and being like, oh, right, this is a thing I can't change. I should stop, you know, thinking about subtweeting a person on Twitter or something um, <laughs> about something frustrating. Like, if it's frustrating, fix it or stop fixating on it. I want to say I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, come up the podcast. It's a lot of fun. If Yay. if anyone wants to get in contact with you or learn more about like what WebMeadow is doing, what, what's the best way to, to find you? The best way to find me is on Twitter, where I am WebMeadow. Uh, and then WebMeadow.com is also a good place to find me. But I'm on Twitter more than I'm on my website. So. <laughs> well, fantastic. I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, more of what you've been doing and, and taking a look at that uh, freshly launched site. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been been a fun a fun thing. Say hello to all of the fascinating and, and fantastic wildlife. I will do that. Thanks for listening to Insert Content Here. If you'd like to catch up on our archives or keep up on our new episodes, visit us at lullabot.com slash ideas slash podcasts slash insert content here. You can also visit us directly at insertcontenthere.com. Insert Content Here.